Matthew 14, verses 22 to 33. Now after Jesus had fed the five thousand, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Jesus had fed the 5,000. Miraculous work he did there. Notice he took five loaves and two fish, and he fed a multitude, and there were 12 basketfuls left over. Now, it's very significant that he needed, if I might put it that way, some material to work from, five loaves and two fish. The reason is because Jesus, at this point, did not create out of nothing. Um, he turned water into wine. At the beginning, he was the one through whom all things were made, and they were made out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the kind of technical term for that. But that was finished. There's a coherence to the Bible's teaching. And if you start doubting bits of it, you lose the coherence and you lose the whole message. The fact was that when the Lord created the universe, the Lord being Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, in six days, days that had an evening and a morning, he then finished. That work was out of nothing. He spoke these things into existence. The Word. Jesus is the Word made flesh. But after that, the world is sustained. That's called providence. And creation out of nothing doesn't take place. Now, in the miracle of miraculous power of God, he can multiply, as he did with the um, loaves and fishes, and feed a 5,000 men plus women and children and get 12 basketfuls left over. But that's just how the revelation is. When God created the universe, he finished it. 
which is why all evolutionary ideas are so contrary to the revelation of the truth. Now, that's important to say that because if you then read in Hebrews, in Gen, um, John's Gospel, you read of Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the Word became flesh, but said he was in the beginning with God, and through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that was made. Then if you turn to Hebrews, you find also talking about the Lord Jesus, he upholds all things by the word of his power. So creation comes first, providence then follows on and continues, and continues even now through this fallen world. And therefore, it's the same word by which Jesus, Jesus no less, upholds the universe. Now, you can't just have a pocket saviour and uh, a column bait. <laughs> he draws close to us and is Emmanuel, Lord with us, but he is God. I remember many years ago, um, there was a mission and they, they, they wanted to be a bit clever, I think, and they called it Jim. And it stood for Jesus in me. And this apparently was good news to tell people, Jesus is in me. Well, that's good testimony through the Holy Spirit, but I don't think it was a very effective way of going about mission. <laughs> it's, Jesus is the Lord God. Now, we need to say that because that explains why he could do what he did. He sent the disciples over to the other side of the boat, but the weather was against them, and they didn't get very far, while he went up to the mountain to pray. And then between the, uh, the third and fourth watch of the night, which is like three to six, he came to them walking on the water. Now, what he was, it was obviously an extraordinary thing to do, I mean, a unique thing to do, but it shows, if you, if you actually tie that in with the Old Testament, you'll see what the significance of it was. You, you don't need to look, but even Job in chapter 9, and verse 8, talking about the Lord God, says this. God commands the sun and it does not rise and sets up the stars. He's got power over even, you know, making the sun not do what it usually does, which happened in Joshua's day. Who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And that's this description of the Lord there. And a similar one in Psalm 77. I think it's Psalm 77. I noticed it down this morning. Verse 19, I think. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now, those 
you've got to put those verses in the context of the whole Bible. The first one from Job talks about creation as well, that God stretched out the heavens. Now, it says that many times in the Bible, that God stretched out the heavens. And um, it was something that uh, I think Hubble kind of discovered in the 30s, <laughs> that the universe was seemingly expanding. Well, it may not be expanding. You don't see the expansion in the Milky Way, you see it further out. That's maybe because the light takes time to get here. But God stretched it out at the beginning. That's in the Bible many times. He stretched it out. And then he walks on the sea. Well, this is obviously not talking about literal footprints, but God's sovereignty over the waters, which is true in the second uh, bit in Psalm 77. And it talks about how you led the people out of Israel by the hand of Moses, by Moses. Now, that's very specific. The Lord led. Moses was the instrument by which it was done. And Jude, the Lord's half-brother, says very explicitly, Jesus led the people out of Egypt. Jesus is God. The mystery of the Trinity is something beyond us, but not beyond our believing. Beyond our understanding, but not beyond our believing. That there is one God, but three persons, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And while Jesus, when he came as a baby in the womb of Mary, uh, became a human being, as I said to you the other day, that's very important um, in witnessing to Muslims because they reject that Jesus is God, but then they reject that we're made in God's image. Once you accept the Bible's revelation that we are made in God's image, not the image of an ape, by the way, which the 19th century latched onto, then you can see, at least understand or grasp or receive or accept that God could become man because we're made in his image anyway. And uh, Jesus was born as a baby, but although he laid aside his majesty, as we sing, and made himself, in one sense, nothing, he still was God. And every so often, this was manifest in certain things he did. Well, obviously, in the miracle, um, in the, just before this, uh, but also here, walking on the water. You see, the so-called laws of nature are, aren't there because they're part of the system. They're there because God acts consistently in his universe. But he can command the sun to stand still. And he can walk on water. And that's what happened here. So we see here the deity of Jesus walking on the water. Amazing. Well, he came to the distressed disciples, uh, buffeted by the wind and tossed by the waves. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. Not surprising. And they cried out in fear. But immediately 
Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. <laughs> when Jesus said, it is I, there's more to it than just, that's me, which is bad grammar anyway. <laughs> it is, I am the I am. The one who was at the bush when Moses saw the Lord, that was Jesus there, or the pre-incarnate Jesus, saying, I am who I am. So all these, that's why you need to read through the Bible. We encourage people, I haven't gotten here at the moment, to do McShane's readings. I'll bring some down. There may be some in there. But if you go through McShane's readings, you go through the Bible in a year, or you can do two years, uh, but you begin to see how it all holds together, and functions together. 66 books, but actually inspired by the one spirit. So, here's the Lord God in the form of man walking on the water, terrifying the disciples and saying, don't be afraid, take heart, it's I. Then, I suppose if I'm doing points, <laughs> this is the next point. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come on the water. <laughs> he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Like Steve's grandfather. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith. Whoa. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. So, here's brash Peter, always up for the next spiritual thing. So, if it's you, I'll come out. Can you tell me to come out? And Jesus said, yeah, come and walk on the water. And he did, and he walked towards Jesus. But then, he saw what the wind was doing. He didn't say he looked at the waves, but the waves were big and... The wind was stirring them up. So he took his eyes off Jesus and he saw the circumstances and he began to sink. Now the application of that is pretty obvious with a text like looking to Jesus. My dear wife was always going back to this story of Peter walking on the water. You take your eyes off Jesus and you begin to sink. You look at circumstances and you begin to sink. We could be spending all our time looking at circumstances, uh, particularly in this day, these days of continuing COVID, and we sink. I have to say, my, my dear wife was taken nearly two and a half years ago, and I haven't got over it. And if I look at the circumstances, I sink. I have to look to Jesus. He tells me to do what it says in Hebrews 11, it says, verse 6, is without faith, it's impossible to please God. So he wants me to trust him. He wants you to trust him. He wants you and me to look to him. 
This word renew has really been with me these past few, few weeks. And I'll tell you why, because, well, lots of reasons really, but one of them is it puts us all on the same level. We all need renewing. Some of us have been on the Christian path many, many years, some of us not so long. But you, I'm looking into the faces of those who need renew, renewing, and you're looking certainly at me, and I need the Lord's renewing. And it, the Bible actually says we're renewed every day. Though our outward form is wasting away, we are renewed every day. But we don't always experience that. We don't always expect that. We're often like Peter. We don't look at Jesus. We look at the wind. We see the waves, and we begin to sink. Now, the Lord does not want us to sink. And when we do sink, I'm afraid he says to us, oh, you of little faith. So when I sink, he says to me, oh, Derek, you of little faith. And I want you to put your name there. I mean, Peter is to be commended, isn't he? I mean, the other guys stayed in the boat. I've seen, I've seen cartoons of this, all the other disciples in the boat. Peter walking out and the other disciples say, we're right behind you, Peter. <laughs> the fact was, they stayed and he didn't. So that's good. And it's a good thing to walk out and step out in faith. But it's not good when having started that way, you end up looking at the circumstances of your life because you sink. That's what Peter did. So what happened? Jesus immediately, I like that, <laughs> immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him and said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Now, I can't apply that to your lives. The Holy Spirit has to apply it to your lives, your circumstances, as he has to me. And that's part of that song we were singing <laughs> about renewing. You know, as I put in that letter, self-help is useless. It's a modern form of Pelagianism. Only God can help us. God is our refuge and strength. Our present help, or will try to help, literally, in trouble. That's what it means. I remember hearing of a man, a woman, I can't remember where it was now, but a, a saint of God who died. And down the little Bible this person had were, were every so often, quite often, in fact, handwritten something that looks like TCP. <laughs> and they thought, well, what, why has he put or she put TCP there so much? Then they realized it wasn't a C, it was an and. Tried and proven. And Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present or well-proven, literally, help in time of trouble. So Jesus immediately reached out to this sinking man. Psalm 107 says, they cried out to the Lord in their distress, and the Lord heard them. So let that be how you go into this new year. And then, well, I suppose this is point number three, if you want it to be a point. Then those in the boat 
worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now, I don't know whether you get the actual implications of that, but if Jesus was not the son of God, this is blasphemy. No one is to be worshipped except the true God in the scriptures. Even the angel who revealed things to John in Revelation, John fell down on at his feet to worship. He said, don't worship me. Worship God. So you see, Jesus is not an angel. Jesus is not a creation like the deists or the Sicinians or Unitarians or the Muslims or Jehovah's Witnesses or whoever say. He is God. And he received worship. It was C.S. Lewis who said, I think slightly different words, but this is how it's often come across. Jesus is either mad or bad or God. He's mad if he was delusioned and thought of himself God. He was bad if he knew he wasn't, but pretended to be. But the reality is he is God. And they worshipped him as God. You know, these men at this time, apart from Judas, were already born again. That's very clear. You are clean, all of you, says Jesus, at the Last Supper, except the son of perdition. The Lord, the Holy Spirit, operated in these men already to bring the second birth, the newness of life. And although they were very confused still as to about who Jesus was in one sense and what his mission was, when he talked about when being crucified, um, Peter said, not so, Lord. Um, they nonetheless did know they had the Redeemer, God in the flesh, in their presence, in their boat. He's in your boat. So worship him there and trust him. And may the Lord give us grace to keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus Christ. God is working. He's working in all of us in different ways. He's working in ways in certain people that we haven't perhaps seen for a long time. I was having a long conversation with Alison um, Jack from Fairfield on Friday night. And we were talking a lot about this. And the Holy Spirit is working. Now, I would like to see much more. But I'm not sure that's the spiritual bit of me or the carnal bit of me which likes to see some results, you know. I think I do know which it is, actually. God works in his own way. He had 12 disciples, one of whom was a devil, as he described him, and changed the world. He can do that again in our day. I shared with, and I'll close with this, 
I shared with Alison experience I've shared with you, it bears repeating. Many, many years ago, when there was still a college in Brintirian in Wales, it's closed and it went online or other ways. It's now the Welsh Evangelical School of Theology, but it was a college in Brintirian. And it, there were a lot of Koreans there uh, because there was something in 1908 called the Korean Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came in power, believe it or not, in Phnom Penh, in North Korea. When Korea was carved up after the Korean War, the communists took the north bit and the, uh, the west took the second part, the lower part, the south. But there was a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Phnom Penh in 1908. And uh, there always have been, I don't know about these days because it's changed, but number quite a few Korean students at this college. I can't remember exactly why I went down there now, who it was to see, maybe one of them. Anyway, I was not that far. I was on my own. I didn't tend to drive long distances on my own, but that I did. Um, and I thought, I'd like to go to Lucca, where the revival came in 1904. That's L-O-U-G-H-O-R. But in the vagaries of pronunciation, that's pronounced Lucca. So I found the map full of days of sat nav and went there, parked outside the church where it happened. Big iron gates. I thought, oh, well, I don't know I'm getting get very far. It said Lucca, uh, Calvinistic Methodist Church. I thought, this is the place. Then I noticed notice on the gates. There was the, there was the mobile phone number of the church secretary on the gate. So I thought, well, I'll give it a go. So I phoned him up. And he said, I said, I'd like to see inside the church. I'd like to see the hall, the side room where the Holy Spirit came. All right, he said. He said, um, I'm actually shopping with my wife. I'm in the supermarket. Give me half an hour. Can you, can you wait half an hour? I said, oh, yes, I can wait half an hour. So I waited half an hour. And sure enough, he came. He hadn't really been associated with that church for too long. He was actually not a Calvinistic Methodist. He was a Baptist. But that, by the way, he believed in what happened in that church. So he took me in through the church and into a hall just a little bit bigger than our lighthouse lounge. During the week, it was a schoolroom, and there were desks there, but uh, they were sort of <laughs> adaptable desks, and you could turn the desk back. It made the back of a seat. Do you know what I mean? Untouched since the, uh, you know, the first, well, over 100 years. Well, I mean, they hadn't taken anything away. I mean, And he said this was the room where the Holy Spirit came and two, uh, one Tuesday in 1904, Evan Roberts or Ewan Roberts would um, not miss a prayer meeting in case the Holy Spirit came. He was so convinced that was going to happen, and it did happen. And the Holy Spirit descended in that room. So I stood there feeling very overawed. And of course, the influence of that spread right throughout the world. Interestingly, it only lasted two years. And in some ways, it left Wales very spiritually dead afterwards. But it spawned or produced an amazing fruit. One of the things that came straight out of it was the Elim and the Assemblies of God movement, the Pentecostal movement. 
Um, Cecil Polehill, the brother of Arthur Polehill, one of the founders of this church, came, he left China in, two, in the year uh, nine, uh, yes, um, 1900, that's right, that's right. And he went to America to seek the baptism of the Spirit, went to the Azusa Street prayer meeting, was filled with the Holy Spirit, came back and started something called the Pentecostal Missionary Union. Nothing to do with denominations, but simply para-Pentecost. And he sponsored George Jeffries, who was a worker in the co-op, uh, one of the places in South Wales. And his brother Stephen, he didn't have quite so much to do with him, but George Jeffries founded the Elim Church. Stephen founded the uh, Assemblies, I think. And they both were here in this town in the early 20s with a mission, which is how the work of the uh, Garden City Church, as it's now called, was started. And how that hall was built at the end of that road, <laughs> where this church first met, having met first, well, actually first in the offices of um, Marmot Factory, and then moving into that hall, which isn't there anymore. Um, so all this is kind of tied up. Now, just getting back to that day when I met this man, he said to me, you know, if you, have you been down to the sea? I said, no. He said, well, there's a 12 feet difference between high tide and low tide. And he said to me, although uh, I've had, I don't know whether this is accurate or not really, it's the second greatest draft in the world. Whether he's accurate or not doesn't really matter. That's what he told me between high and low tide. And he said, I believe the Welsh revival was the second greatest revival and the greatest revival is yet to come. I just share it with you. Obviously it impacted me else I wouldn't be able to rehearse all this detail to you. Um, but when we come to start Romans, God willing next month, one of the principles in that book is one that's found in the 11th chapter that God consigns all people to disobedience in order to have mercy on them. And they have to go into deep unbelief before he brings them into shining, transforming faith. And dare we believe that for him, for our culture? I believe we should. But what we're experiencing is the end of the beginning, beginning of the end, I don't know what you call it. Uh, but there's been rebellion against the truth of God in this nation since the restoration in 1662. And the culture we produce in the last 350 or 60 years is increasingly godless. But God can turn that round in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye if he chooses to. And it's the task, the privilege, and the responsibility of people like you and me to believe him, to send revival. Now, in my little letter I sent you yesterday, I used the word renew. I was careful not to use the word revive too much because we can get into the habit of talking about having a revival, by which we mean a lively meeting or calling people in and getting a speaker in. That's not a revival. 
Revival is when the Holy Spirit comes in power and renews the church, revives the church, and then they go out with the message and multitudes are saved. But the word renew is used quite a lot in the Bible about um, our individual experiences now. I mean, in Titus, uh, the experience is described as washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. Um, Our outward nature is wasting away, but inwardly we are renewed every day. And I'm going to finish here, but I'd like some of us just to pray out loud that each of us may be renewed through the gospel and through the Holy Spirit. So I'll bring the microphone down to you. If you could just indicate you can feel able to pray like that, um, I'll bring the microphone down.